Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, he came as a witness about the light. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers. That all might believe through him. Therefore, this is the record of a man named Jesus. He is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And today I will prove it to you. And if you listen closely, it just might change everything. And this is our story. Remember? Abraham. He fathered Isaac. Isaac, he was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and all of his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, remember, he was the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, he was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, well, you must remember Obed. He was the father of Jesse. And Jesse, of course, was the father of David, the king. The one who, as prophesied from days of old, that from the dry and cracking dust of sin will raise a branch in victory. In his name, Isaiah says, shall be Emmanuel, God with us. This is Bible Unbound. Let's explore. Matthew comes right out of the gate swinging with a massive claim about the, the identity and the person of this random craftsman from Nazareth. He, by the third word in Greek, calls Jesus the Christ, which it's the Greek rendering of the Hebrew word Messiah. He also begins to knock out our expectations of who the Messiah will be right off the bat. He's clearly speaking to an audience that is steeped in the Hebrew scriptures. He knows that his audience will pick up on the exact themes that he's making use of right away. For example, in the Old Testament books, the God of heaven and earth, well, he breaks through the silence and the chaos of the world in a still small whisper of redemption. And from that, he begins to work out his plan for salvation. Yeah, you think Elijah, Ruth, Genesis. And now here too, in the beginning, Matthew says, God breaks through the silence and the chaos of his creation to bear a son 
to a virgin woman. Now, I know that the virgin birth has set people up for failure for generations, because even since biblical times, people have been skeptical of it. Uh, but let's do our whole Bible Unbound thing and, and think about how this fits into the grand unifying narrative of the Bible before we ask how it was scientifically possible. And then, when we come up with an answer as to how it fits into the narrative, we can weigh in on whether or not we need it to be possible for us. And some of us, by the way, with this whole thing, will come away with different answers, and, and that's absolutely fine. But, but, so this girl who has never had any intimate interactions with a man shows up pregnant to dinner one night, and she begins to explain that this is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, that this is God incarnate, Emmanuel. Now, no matter what you think of the validity of this claim, you must at least recognize that it makes a profound theological assertion that God has come in human form from the seed of the woman. Fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament all in one stroke, revealing to the world what it means to be truly human like the poems of the Psalms had done for centuries. We're beginning to see that Matthew is painting a picture here. You know, barring the scientific validity for now, he's painting a picture that, that this boy is fitting perfectly into the Old Testament expectations for who the Messiah will be. And so the story continues on, and, and this boy grows up into a man named Jesus of Nazareth. And he's passing by the Jordan River one day when his cousin exclaims that this is the man who has a special relationship to God, meaning that Jesus is truly righteous. And so when Jesus is baptized and the heavens open up, God declares that this is my son in whom I am well pleased, solidifying our notions that this man is truly a righteous man. Uh, but if he is truly righteous, if he's truly fitting into our notion of the, of the Messiah, then what that means is he's called to be a leader of Israel. And, and as all leaders, as all image bearers, this man, Jesus, must be tested to do what is right in his own eyes or in the eyes of God. We've seen this play out a hundred times in the Old Testament. The judges, the nation of Israel, the exodus, over and over and over again. And so when Jesus is called away into the desert wilderness, we should begin to hold our breath. We know two things are going to be true. One, according to Isaiah, the Messiah must be what Israel could not have been. And two, we know that when Israel was called into the desert wilderness, they were almost immediately crushed by the snake. And so it's no coincidence that it is here in the wilderness where we meet our old adversary, the opposition that had been pulling the strings since the garden, the snake, who will be crushed we ask. The battle is not at all how we expect, as they parry words and pivot ideas, slashing back and forth until finally they both come out unscathed, unexpected, 
to be sure. Uh, but as the book says, the serpent went away until an opportune time. And until then, we see this man, Jesus from Nazareth, at least doing what Israel could not do. He positions himself as a king of a grand, beautiful kingdom. And he begins to preach this sermon of his kingdom on a small mountainside, with crowds gathering in the thousands. We see that his kingdom is marked with justice. The persecuted are blessed, the down and the outcast are blessed, and they're entered into the fold of the righteous right alongside of him. But we also see by his rhetoric that, that this task of being entered into the kingdom of God, of being righteous with him, is completely impossible. As we see that one must be as righteous as God is righteous. And as he says that, the hearts of everyone there, including the religious leaders, sink. Jesus will be just as unexpected as we expect him to be. Because, as Matthew writes, he moves from this space where no one is righteous before him. And he begins to perform all of these miracles, these wonders, these signs that were prophesied from the Old Testament. We see that his passion and love to see the Garden of Eden restored within people overflows into a cacophony of life. It, it, it reminds us of the Song of Solomon, as people from all of the fringes of society, the deaf, the sick, the lame, they find rest in the comfort of his hands. And much like Ezekiel's parables, these miracles never end how we expect them to, because they have ears but they don't hear and eyes, but they don't see yet. They don't see that Jesus' wisdom is this cosmic wisdom that has been cultivated over all of human history as he poignantly begins to point out the humanity, the flaws, the victories, the pain that will be experienced in the kingdom of God in his parables. He performs these wonders and miracles, and he preaches these parables for nearly ten chapters in the book of Matthew, each one telling the reader more about the person of Jesus and the kingdom that he preaches. And he, and he preaches all the way to Passover week, when he finally comes to Jerusalem. And here, in Jerusalem, we see Jesus entering into the role of the prophet, the prophet, as we've talked about, is one of the three most important offices of Jewish leadership. And, and though he had a triumphant entry into the city, the people have not yet recognized him as king. And they stand to defile the place where the presence of God once dwelt, the temple. And so, with his prophetic voice, he thunders that they repent that they turn from their evil ways, and he begins to denounce the leaders of Jerusalem as wicked, and he declares that the temple will one day be torn down. But after three days, this man, Jesus, claims that he will build it back up again. Enraged at this notion, the leaders then, right then and there, begin to plot 
his death. Not only has this man from Nazareth humiliated the leadership, and not only has he placed himself in the place of the prophetic Messiah, but he has placed himself in the place of God himself, claiming to be the Christ, claiming to be Emmanuel, God with us. But if he's going to be entered into the role of the Messiah as he claims, then he's going to be entered into the role of leadership. And as all leaders, as all image bearers, he must be tested to do what is right in his own eyes or in the eyes of God. And so, when he's called out into a nighttime garden, we hold our breath. He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here. Watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He is the perfect representative. He is the righteous, just redeemer of the land, the one who has come to crush the head of the snake, the one who has come to overcome Rome. And so when the Roman soldiers come and they steal him away in the night, we either think that this is a horrendous mistake and the God of the universe truly has abandoned his people, or that this just turned into an inside job. Because as the snake crusher is taken away, he was oppressed, and he was the words of Isaiah 53 had never seemed so clear. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And this man of God, the only one among us who is truly righteous and just, the only one among us who could truly enter into the presence of God, the only one among us who could bring us into the presence of God, smitten by God, is crucified at the hands of Rome. When the world goes dark, as we think the snake has crushed its last victim, the snake has crushed our last hope. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Because as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a big fish. So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And instead of being vomited up by a fish fillet, the Son of Man bursts forth in a glorious new day and the radiance of his beauty shines through space and through time. The perfect representative the true King of Israel, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Snake Crusher, 
defeats the enemies of God, not through some political maneuvering, but through the will of God himself. He is the Christ. He is the King, the true leader of humanity as the temple curtain splits in two and he leads us into the presence of God, defeating death, becoming the undying man. And this is the greatest miracle of them all. That death is defeated and the snake crusher reigns as king. Redeeming the land, ushering in Eden, and right alongside of it, the kingdom of God. So repent and believe that this is how reality operates. That sins are forgiven and death is defeated. For he has risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Hey, if you're liking what we're doing here, hey, consider donating to the project or becoming a patron on Patreon. It's the unfortunate reality of the game, but a reality nonetheless. And, and don't get me wrong, we really, really appreciate all that you've done for us so far. So keep sharing, keep reviewing, and most of all, keep exploring. Okay, this episode might be somewhat longer than normal, but hey, that's okay, because we do need to do a couple of things here before we get going into the other disciples' gospel accounts. So this kind of acts like an episode and a half, and it'll probably be that long. And it's because we really need to talk about something. You and I, right here, right now, we really need to talk about what the gospel accounts are and what they are not before we can really dive into analyzing them at all. For one, this is my opinion, but I think that the gospel accounts are a really great representative of what the Bible as a whole is and how it operates. But let me start by saying this. The gospel accounts are not, and this is not my opinion, the gospel accounts are not detailed historical biographies of the snake crusher. Now, I know for some of you that this may be hard to hear, and that may be a shock, it was to me when I first started to learn it, but, but let's walk through this. This is simply just the reality of the situation, and, and that's okay. We're here in this together. It's okay that the Gospels are not historical biographies, because what they are is so much better than that. The Gospels are the accounts of the life of a man that the authors and followers of this man thought was the snake crusher. And they are trying to convince the audience of this reality as well. Now, hold on, because I'm more concerned about your heart in this than I am about being clever. And so I need to tell you, 
just because the stories in the events within the Gospels are arranged to convey a message does not mean that these stories and events never happened. They may very well have, and it seems like we have a lot of evidence that these things did happen, but that's just not their purpose as they operate in your Bibles. Their purpose is to convince you of something. It, again, hold on, we're not done yet. Just because the authors are trying to convince you of something does not mean that they are malicious or lying. In fact, every piece of art that you encounter forever and for always will be trying to convince you of something. So the best analogy that I can come up with as to how to look at the gospel accounts is like a modern day documentary. If you haven't already figured it out, all documentaries are trying to convince you of a worldview. All documentaries are trying to sway you to their political, their social, their artistic agenda. And, and until I said this to you, you never thought documentaries were bad, huh? No, because they're not bad. Documentaries are not inherently bad. What they do is they capture real historical events from actual history, from actual reality, and then they edit those events together to convince you of a truth. This is just simply what all art does. And it doesn't mean that the Bible isn't true. In fact, I would argue it simply means the Bible is more true because we often think of true as just being empirical evidence. But in this case, the authors are intimately attuned to what it means to be human. They're trying to promulgate human truths, cosmic truths, greater than just empirical evidence. And so, there you go. The gospel accounts of Jesus are trying to convince you of an aspect of his messiahhood. Whew. Okay, good. We can breathe easy. And, and for me, this actually alleviates a ton of problems that many people have with the gospels. Because when we look at it this way, we don't need to concern ourselves over the mere historicity of the events and try to reconcile all four gospels together. And that's important, sure, but just not at this stage of the game. This way, we can look at the Gospels for what they are and what they are trying to accomplish. In this case, the Gospel of Matthew is trying to convince a Jewish audience that Jesus is the Jewish King, the fulfilled King of David, whose throne will never end. And we can look at three huge evidences for this very claim. I mean, the first one is the first several words in the book, right off the bat. Matthew has positioned himself and the reader into very specific roles when he claims that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Also, it's significant that he stops his genealogy at Abraham. It suggests that he has no further audience in mind than the children of Abraham. And so then we have a repeated emphasis from there on out on the kingdom of heaven. And that's a clearly Jewish motif. It's not like the Greeks were arguing over that concept. We've seen that exact phrase in all of the minor prophets, that the kingdom of heaven is that space in which the Messiah will usher in God's rule and reign on earth. We talked about that for the past like month and a half. And those guys all said it would come about through judgment. Remember that? The burning, clearing, refining fire image. Matthew paints a picture in which that judgment, that refining fire, is put clear onto the shoulders of Jesus so that we 
you and I can be entered into the kingdom of heaven. This is all very specific to the Hebrew Bible. And finally, right away, again in Matthew 1, Matthew links the entire book, the entire gospel account, back to Isaiah. And as we've discussed, the book of Isaiah is about the Messiah being the perfect Israelite. That's significant. We can begin to see when we read the Gospels for what they are, that the transition from the Old Testament into Matthew's Gospel is so smooth because it's so much more Jewish than the rest of the Gospel accounts that we're going to take a look at. So we can see going from Malachi, or Daniel if you were reading an old, old, old Testament, that into Matthew's Gospel, everything just begins to make sense. It all begins to fall into place. It'd be like if you listened to a 34-episode podcast on the entirety of the Old Testament, and then you jumped right into episode 35, and you were like, oh, everything clicks into place when we get to Matthew's episode. Did that work? I think that worked. I think that was a good analogy. <laughs> and so now, at the very end of this episode, I can lay out all my cards on the table and say how in each of these episodes, I am trying to convince you of a reality. And here's the deal. You can take it or you can leave it. Just like you can take it or you can leave it with any piece of art you interact with ever, including this book right here. I I'm just going to be real and honest with you guys and say that I truly do want you to become a Christian if you're not. But ultimately, that choice, that's up to you. And if at the end of this thing, if you don't buy into the whole Christian thing, if at the end of this entire series you're not convinced, that's okay. We could still be friends. We could still hang out. I'd actually rather you come and hang out with me. And so I promise we will hang out next week as we explore Mark's gospel. Thanks so much. This was Bible Unbound.